You are listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. One of Us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio-based or banner ads, but on a case-by-case basis. If you are interested in that, contact us at oneofusnet at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at 2 5 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of us needs and appreciates all your support. Okay, I know we're a little bit late. We have lives, people. I mean, all of us were a little disrupted by doing Fantastic Fest and going, well, can you add to your normal amount of watching and stuff you do every day? I don't know, 50 or so more movies to watch in the next week or so. <laughs> it's a little disruptive. So we f- found a bit uh, getting back on our feet time, and we are here with the final and slightly longer Fantastic Fest reviews and infestation. I will not probably add the echoey effect that probably belongs there, but nonetheless, we got a bunch of stuff to talk about. Joining me is Neil... Hello. Ray. Hello. And Drew. I love thinking that like Fantastic Fest is still going on. I wish we were going to the theater tonight. <laughs> I do sometimes, and other times I'm like, oh, thank God it's over. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting old and it's a little tiring. Well, this stays sure. timely because none of these have been released yet. I mean, we don't even know that I'll get distro, so. Well, one of them we're talking about has, in fact, gotten a release, and I've been wanting to talk about it anyway. And I know that Drew and I are the only ones who saw it, but I've been dying to talk about, uh, how's it pronounced? It's not Titan. It's Titana? Titan. Yeah, well, that's the thing. It's like, you know, I'm not saying it's pretentious, but if you don't know how to pronounce it, it that might be a problem. That might be the first key. I was always like, oh, it's French. Just pronounce it phonetically. I'm like, but that one not. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, uh, this is by the director uh Ducarneau, who did the film Raw, that was quite the festival sensation when it played multiple festivals across the country. And I remember seeing it at, I think it was Fantastic Fest, and going, wow, this is a very intense coming-of-age story about cannibalism. So everyone was like, okay, well, after that very stylish and involving and horrifying film, what could possibly be next for this director? And they were like, hold my beer, watch this. Because <laughs> uh, Titan is... I had a hard time thinking of an exact thing to compare it to, but I keep people say Cronenbergian, and I guess that's as close as we get. When I say that, I think more of something along, along the lines of Crash or something, but only in the sense that people like to fuck cars. And it follows a woman, Alexia, who, when she was a kid, she got in a car accident, it cracked her skull, and she had titanium put in a big plate, but it quickly switches to her being an uh, older woman who is now makes a living stripping at car shows, and a fanboy follows her out to her car, starts getting really aggressive, is like, come on, come on, just give me a little kiss, give me a little kiss. And she reaches in for a kiss, and then promptly uh, murders him. And then she goes back, afterwards she goes into this, I don't know, it's sort of like almost a religious thing, this flame-painted badass Cadillac 
uh, that's just sitting in the middle of this garage that seems to be alive, question mark. And uh, she starts masturbating in it, and it seems like something magical is happening. And what magical is happening, in fact, is that she ends up getting pregnant somehow by masturbating inside this car, presumably by the car. In the meantime, she's murdering people all over the place. They are very graphic and extreme. Uh, but there's a, she leaves a witness at one of her murder sprees. She has to go on the run. She sees this image of what a missing child named Adrian, a little boy, would look like today. And she's like, that kind of looks like me. So she, in one of the most disturbing scenes, breaks her own nose, uh, binds her breasts and her pregnant, very pregnant belly, goes to a police station and says, hey, I'm Adrian. And the father, Vincent, played by Vincent Lindon, is so wants to believe this is the case. He's like this, you know, very muscly fire chief. Uh, immediately takes her in, uh, believing, yes, this is my son. Uh, the whole time he's like shooting himself up with steroids regularly and also kind of disturbing sequences. And the firehouse is, you know, full with macho, sexy dudes. Uh, and she's just trying to keep a low profile throughout this while she's wondering what is going on with this baby. There's a lot of metaphors going on here. There's a lot of really fascinating imagery. And I think a lot of people walked out of this just going, what the fuck did I just watch? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's fair, especially because you're you're kind of being sold a bill of sale. That's you know um, a, not what this movie is, and um, you know the marketing behind it is making it look like kind of the first ten minutes of the film, and then it becomes a much more intimate you know story between these two characters. But um, I did think it was interesting at the Q and A at um, at Fantastic Fest where you know Julia was actually asked like you know, um, what kind of car was it that actually impregnated, um, Alexia, the character. And, and she said that the car is feminine. So I thought that was, that was, you know, interesting. And and she said, well, it had to be a low, low rider, obviously just for the, the actual, um, you know, just the, the sex scene of that. I, I was surprised by this movie, um, in kind of the wrong ways. Um, I think, I think the, the, being there for the Q and a actually really helped me get into the film more. And I'd like to watch it again after listening to her, because I think it's just one of those examples where they had so many ideas and she had so many ideas of Greek mythology and especially between the two characters that I don't know if that necessarily necessarily translated into the movie itself, but some of the ideas didn't really get into the, the, the actual film. It's definitely feels like a second film that she's trying to do a lot. And I'm not sure if everything works, but it's, not always easy to parse exactly what's going, supposed to be going on, especially in the subtext anyway. But I did think this was like way colorful enough and fast moving enough and shocking enough that it really entertained the hell out of me as much as one can be entertained by something this disturbing. It did win at the Cannes Film Festival. Was it the, uh, which was it the Palm Door? Yes. Yeah, it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which was like unheard of and people for like a movie like this to win it and for someone's second film and people were shocked, I tell you, shocked. <laughs> well, and, and Spike Spike Lee, you know, infamously gave it up you know, early. Like he, you know, he he actually like said the winner before it was supposed to be announced, which I thought was great. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk next about Baby Assassins. This was a fun one to be sure. At least it was for me. This Japanese very... I don't know, uh, bubbly <laughs> action film. I mean, we've seen a lot of movies that are about teenage assassins, you know, mixing the sort of maybe elements of coming of age, uh, or just the absurdity, the anachronism of very young people being assassins. And this goes for 
although some of it is that like really intense action scenes with at least one of these two actresses here who played the assassins, uh, Akari Takaishi uh, and Sayori Izawa is really, really good. But it also plays a lot with things that you just would not expect to see at all that also have very Japanese feel. Like at one point, the two of them get jobs because they're told by their handler, well, you'll have to have like a fake thing like existence so they get jobs at one of those japanese maid cafes dressed up in cute little cat girl outfits and go oh master how may i help you which does not fit one of them because they're very different people (laughs) one of them is very shy and reserved and cynical and the other is just kind of as bubbly as you would think someone who works at a made cafe would probably be but when this finally gets into its super action i feel like which is not really till the third act i felt like it really delivered I felt the same way. I, the only thing is I kind of wanted more of that action because mm-hmm. there are some really great and even inventive uh, fight scenes and moves in this. So I was really wanting more of that. But it wasn't like I was bored with the first two thirds of it or anything at all because I really like the two main actresses. And, you know, here we are, a couple of girls, and they're just, uh, they're bored with everything in normal life. And the only thing that's any fun is going out and killing people. And I just had fun with it. I liked it a lot. Yeah, I like the way they really are normal teenage girls the rest of the time. They're just constantly checking their phones. And, you know, I mean, they're just into teenage girl Japanese stuff. But then when it comes time to kill, they treat that with the same amount of, like, you know, attention as they give their cell phone games. I really enjoyed it. I thought the first third was slow as hell, though, when they're all cooped up, kind of waiting. And one, there's two, I would say there's two really good fight scenes involving one of them. And the uh, that's the only kind of anything that's interesting in the first third. But the rest of the time, they're cooped up waiting for a job. And that second fight scene was amazing. Probably one of the better things I've seen where it's, kind of a gunfight but kind of a grapple kung fu and it was completely believable that she could stay toe-to-toe and then beat this guy that's much bigger than her they did that really really well but it also feels like they kind of put all their eggs in those two baskets and then kind of like okay how do we fill in the gaps because the part-time job thing like at the maid cafe goes on a long time before they kind of it breaks. It's abs- absurdist enough that I found those parts entertaining, but you did keep asking yourself, wasn't this supposed to have, I don't know, action scenes in it? Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if they really thought they could plan out a third, a fourth, or whatever, but I would have trimmed a little from the front. And we don't need to know how they even got into this. They're so young and so good at it and trusted with high-profile jobs. Don't care. Didn't need that. Uh, but I think they could have trimmed just a little bit and really made it zoom along. Uh, but overall, I thought it was really good and really fun. Yeah, I, I think it is well worth your time. And I would watch another movie with these two actresses following up what they did next, especially that third act, which, like I said, goes from, I mean, this is okay, but it's not what I was hoping for, to holy shit. <laughs> that one scene where the, the one girl's fighting the guy who, like, because they go into it very arrogantly, like, no one can beat us. And that she meets a guy who's kind of her match, and she's even in the middle of the fight. It's like, wow, you're tough. <laughs> You know, uh, not, you know, not even fully accepting, it seems like, in the scene. Yeah, this guy, she could die. Like, there's a good chance she's not going to survive this. By the time it was over, I was like, okay, I, I not only enjoyed that, I'd probably watch it again. But we're going to move on to our next one, which is Cannon Arm and the Arcade Quest, which definitely brings back 
memories of the King of Kong, a festival of quarters, the 2007 doc about the contest between Steve Wiebe and Billy Mitchell to see who will be the world's highest scorer at Donkey Kong. And this is a, I guess, a slightly different take on this sort of thing, but it's not it's not really the contest between two people here, it, although we do get to see an audio cameo, cameo from Billy Mitchell at some one point in here. But this follows Kim, a 55-year-old chemical engineer, his friends call him Cannon Arm, who is apparently, amongst many other games, one of the best players in the world of a game called Gyrus, which was one of my favorite games. It was basically Galaga 2, if you will, although there actually was a game called Galaga 2, but you take my meaning. And he has decided that he is going to break... Uh, one of the hardest records that there is to break in video gaming. You play a single game on a single quarter for a hundred hours straight. I don't know why anyone would think that this is a thing they need to do, but they set this whole thing up in Copenhagen with this barcade called the Bit Bit Bar with all his friends who are there and the community just making sure he's got what he needs. They even do things where, you know, he'll have like 200 lives and they're like, okay, we've figured out you can nap for approximately 15 minutes. And the guy's just keeping a watch on the game to see how many guys' lives he's lost. It is the most tense Excel spreadsheet in cinema history, I think. <laughs> I did feel kind of, though, watching this, I'm like, you know, I already saw King of Kong, and while it's slightly different take, it's not that different of a film. I didn't think of King of Kong till it was over, because him and his friends, his crew, because he also owns an arcade, so it pretty much takes place, like, in these two arcades. You would almost think they were caricatures, they were written, and no, these are real people. Um, I enjoyed the shit out of this. Docs used to be someone's going to do a, a lofty thing and they were always going to succeed because that's why it's a doc. But docs have evolved to where you don't you don't know. You don't know if they're going to climb the mountain or get the thing. <laughs> and yeah, when it's first presented 100 hours, you're like, but what about the bathroom? What about food? What about sleep? And he only really needs to get into the high 50s. But no, we're going to plan for 100 and officially, we can say, fuck Billy Mitchell, because King <laughs> yes. of Kong sets him on a pedestal. And this movie is like the closure, I guess. We'll connect it to King of Kong because it's the flip side of him being dethroned of everything was bullshit with his <laughs> records and everything. And I do love that the main character, after they, they kind of fanboy about him, he doesn't. And then the news breaks that all of all the records are shattered. He's like... I was never really impressed with him in the first place. And it feels so natural of just like, didn't care, still don't care. Yeah, there were three movies I really enjoyed of the whole Fantastic Fest, and this is one of them. I love the shit out of this doc. Maybe miss uh, Fantastic Arcade a little bit, too. I remember like being, you know, when, when King of Kong played where... You know, they were actually trying to beat the Donkey Kong record, you know, in the in the lobby. It would have been nice to have him, have him there as well. But I think Gyrish and those, those, that, that game was like the first color vector game, and so it, that was it was interesting, but yeah, it, it did feel like it was a little. I don't know. Been like, there, done that. They, they were using a lot of stock footage almost from King of Kong. Well, I mean, I liked it too, and I I guess I I didn't like it quite as much as Neil did, but I enjoyed it because I did think that even though you can go, oh, it's kind of like King of Kong, you're talking about a whole different group of people and you're talking about a whole different group of friends and you have billy mitchell and yeah he was out to break this record and all of this stuff and yeah he might have had a fan community behind him but he's kind of a loner and didn't seem like he had necessarily the family and friends support that this guy does i mean this guy has some true friends they have been through thick and thin together and you know they even lost one of their group of friends along the way 
and they're still just there doing what they do. I mean, one of the things that, that Kim wants to have happen while he's trying to break this record is he wants everything to be as normal as possible while he's playing. So he asks his other friends who are not doing anything at the time just to come and play the games that they are really good at near him, next to him. So he's got something kind of normal going on around him. And I thought that was really cool. And most of them are record holders in some aspect, too. Yeah, while this is going on, they're like literally trying to break their own smaller records <laughs> in the background. Although, I don't know, if, are they your best friends if they let you do this sort of thing? <laughs> I, I don't know. Point. Yes, I'm going <laughs> to definitively, yes, they are. <laughs> anyway, we're going to move on to our next one, which is, and I, I got shit, given shit about saying Slumber Party Massacre is not a remake. Because it's not. I'm sorry. I, I, Someone's like, oh, you're being so semantic about it, pedantic. I'm like, I'm not, though, because it is decidedly not a remake of the film. It is straight up a tribute slash absolute satire of Slumber Party Massacre. I would not call that a remake any more than Shaun of the Dead is a remake of Night of the Living Dead. It's more specifically making fun of things from the Slumber Party Massacre series, or at the very least throwing Easter eggs into it. But it's really kind of having fun with the history of like 80s slasher films in general. And uh, director Danishka Esterhazy is the one given the assignment. Now, female director, writer, which is pertinent because the original three films in the Slumber Party Massacre series were all written and directed by women but who still had to do it under the aegis of male-led production companies. So they're what you expect to a large part. There's a lot of boobs. There's a lot of you know male gaze. There's a lot of just what you expect from 80 slasher movies, but with little Easter eggs hidden in there of feminism, which are one of the reasons why people still discuss and watch them, because overall, they're not the world's greatest movies by any stretch of the imagination, even for slasher films. But there's a lot of love here by Esther Hazy for this, as she follows a girl, Dana, uh, played by Hannah Gonera, who is the uh, the daughter of the only survivor of a previous massacre in 1993, who's going on a weekend trip with her friends. Their car breaks down in the exact same town where her mom once fought the famous driller killer uh, and presumably killed him. They never found the body. And of course, they're going to end up coming, you know, directly face to face with the killer. I mean, obviously, because it'd be silly if they didn't. But at first you're like, okay, so this is kind of a traditional slasher but it's not long before it really sets up oh wait this is a slasher with people who are hyper aware of slashers and hyper aware of the situation and are completely uh i mean they, these are women who are not going to be innocent victims at all they are kind of prepared for the scenario in a very funny meta sort of way there's some other guys there as well who are out there because they they do podcasts about serial killers and they're like oh we're here to like you know this is where it happened and they're the weak ones and it plays up very strongly how all the tropes that are misogynist in in uh, previous 80s slasher movie cinema they lay on them instead like the boys having a just in their underwear pillow fight where the feathers break up or a loving shot moving down the body of one of them as he's taking a shower you know it's doing all that stuff instead of the other way around and even though this is I mean, intentionally kind of junky I really had a good time with this. I laughed out loud quite a few times during this. I thought it was really, really fun. And I mean, leave it to kind of a Canadian director and a female director, too, to kind of lampoon, you know, this this series, too. But I but I think you're right. Like It, it kind of gets through all of the references of Slumber Party Massacre in like the first 15 minutes. 
You know, <laughs> I mean, they have that. There's there's the iconic guitar is there. Yeah. Um. You know, from from the second one, and then you know that voyeur aspect of it is there as well. Um. But they do have a shower scene that's reversed a little bit, and they do have a great gag with you know two guys named Guy, which which is which is really funny. But um. <laughs> I still wanted more references, but I understand that, you know, when you're, this is a sci-fi movie and it's kind of, maybe it's not a sequel, maybe it's a reboot, but there's somebody that's, you know, 15 that's watching this that maybe hasn't seen those. And actually part three is quite hard to find now. It's probably the weakest of the series, I guess. Well, that, that, hopefully that's, that's why it's so hard to find, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, so, so I understand why it kind of ends up becoming a, you know, parody of all slashers and it is a, a lot of fun, but I, I wanted, I, I think just, just from me loving the first movies i wanted more references i wanted some andrew dice clay references i wanted a music video perhaps i wanted like you know i was telling you before chris i wanted some kind of reference to like one of the characters being a billionaire's son because you know the the, the killer uh, you know in the first movie is actually um in real life uh the son of a billionaire um that keeps impersonating andrew dice clay and uh, the entire time so I, I, but I, but I had tons of fun with it. Yeah, I think it's a good time, and I know what you mean. Though it's like when I'm watching the new Halloween films, I'm like, seriously, is no one going to cast Buster Rhymes in this thing? Because Buster Rhymes should be in this thing. Dangertainment all day long. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I do think as well with your time. I will say it is Sci-Fi Channel produced, which means the gore is tamped down more than I had specifically heard they wanted it to be. But the kills are very inventive nonetheless, and they do get away with a lot regardless with, with the gore here. Uh, there's a scene in particular that, you know, when they get the killer was just making me laugh. Cause it's one of those that you always yell at like, Oh, for God's sake, what are you doing? Make sure they're dead. <laughs> and like these characters are familiar with that. <laughs> and the whole audience was just kind of cracking up. But of course, Nothing is ever as it seems in these sort of movies. Well, we're going to move on to our next one. Boy, what are we going to do? We're going to do Barbarians, which I believe Neil and I saw. I did. This was one where I was, I admit, I was kind of attracted to it partially because of the cast in this thing. This is directed by Charles Dorfman. God, poor guy with a name like that. Oh, my God. <laughs> Who I guess this isn't a yeah, this is his first film that he's actually directed the uh, feature film that he's directed. But. Uh, this has got like Tom Cullen in it and, uh, Iwan Rion. And I know you, Iwan Rion, you're like, well, I have no idea who that is, but yes, you do. He was one of the most disturbing people in Game of Thrones. And that's saying something, Ramsey Bolton. Or if you ever watched the show Misfits, he was the very lovable Simon Bellamy on there. Kudos for you to, uh, bringing up Misfits. It needs more love. <laughs> yeah. Simon was great on Misfits. Oh yeah, we all loved him. I was I had a hard time buying him as Ramsey Bolton at first because I loved him so much as the gentle souled character on Misfits. He's like the most likable character on that show, uh, which is easy because most people are not terribly likable. But anyway, <clears throat> Barbarians. This is one of those dinner party from hell movies for the first half, which is a group that's gotten together to celebrate. Uh, Adam, Tom Cullen's birthday. And Tom, uh, or Adam, is a influencer online, and he is completely and utterly full of himself. He's kind of a shitheel. I got that wrong. Adam is the one who Ramsey Bolton is playing. Lucas is the one who is the influencer. Anyway, Lucas has built this model homes and this new development that he's trying to sell. Adam's wife, Eve, yes, has been commissioned to sculpt the signature piece, and she's a very famous artist. And they get to live there while in this beautiful house while the sculpture is being constructed. The whole time, it's this male ego fight between Adam and Lucas, who clearly 
don't terribly like each other, despite ostensibly being friends. They basically like walking around the cage of the dinner table like two pacing tigers. They're brothers, aren't they? Maybe I got that wrong. Maybe it is his little brother. I don't know. And one of them, he definitely plays up the fact that he one is he's much taller than uh, Lucas is much taller than Adam. Anyway, but a lot of it is really that sort of dinner party from hell as they're just kind of slowly everything is getting worse and worse uh, between them. But then about an hour in, something really, really fucking weird and unexpected happens that changes it to an entirely different type of movie. In fact, it changes it from what it is, like I said, like a dinner party, like drama verging on thriller to straight up a horror film. And I'm not going to say specifically why, but I think this is the sticking point for a lot of people who didn't like this film, that they didn't like the shift of tone. But honestly, I felt like it had kind of exhausted as far it could go without some sort of big shoe drop at that point. And having that shoe drop be, here's a whole nother plot that we're lying in on top of this and a whole different type of movie was a was a choice. And it kind of worked for me. I definitely liked the second half better than the first half. The second half picks up, but I was bored the whole time. And I tuned in because of the casting of Ramsey slash Simon. And I had a slot to fill. Yeah, it's a dinner party. We got some real estate shenanigans going on. And then they hint at some supernatural shit with a dying fox that goes nowhere. And even when we get the shift, I didn't think it picked up enough. And this may have been also a problem with watching it at home. The last 20 minutes are outside with no lighting, no moonlight, barely starlight. You can't tell what the fuck's going on. Yeah, and there's very fights dark. outside, and there's two characters who fight, and there's clearly a winner because they almost literally howl at the night. And I'm like, I don't know which one won. I have no idea. They both end up covered in mud and blood, and you can't tell, and you have to wait till there's the big standoff at the end. I didn't care who got out. I didn't care how this resolved, even though it does pick up in the second half. It was just unfortunately boring. I think they needed the the female characters, Lucas's girlfriend, Chloe, played by Inez uh, Spiridnov, and Eve, uh, Adam's wife, played by Catalina Sandino Moreno. They needed more to to feel like they had more to do with the actual plot. They developed their characters well overall, but I felt like, especially in the second half, they're just kind of you know, there for when we need an extra character to do this. Yeah, and without going into spoilers, I think they give Eve more to do in the first half, but Lucas's girlfriend more to do in the second half. But again, it's 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 not enough. When you've got this small kind of... This could be a play, because it's not a big cast at all. They all need shit to do, and they don't all have shit to do it at any long enough. Well, we're going to move on to the next one that Drew and I saw, which was the closing night film of Fantastic Fest. And God damn it, I do not know what they were thinking, because this year there was no party. When the last movie was over, we just kind of all, you know, looked at each other and scuttled away like depressed cockroaches, you know, as the light comes on. Nobody, yeah, nobody wanted to talk to each other after seeing Silent Night. I think it might be the most bleak, depressing film I personally have ever experienced. Like the, the way I felt when this was over took me like two days to get over it, which isn't to say I think it's a bad film. It's just why in the world was this the closing night film of this festival? Uh, And also, you know, it's called Silent Night. So, and, but it's a fantastic fest. So we're thinking, okay, probably a Christmas horror movie of some sort. That's very fantastic festy. And Kira Knightley is playing one of the leads in here, married to Matthew Good, also another big actor. 
later, and then their one of their ch- children, um, Roman Griffin Davis, who we saw as the lead in Jojo Rabbit, who's actually the real life son of the film's writer director. They're in this big country house, and they're you know the beginning. They're like cooking, and they're expecting all their friends to show up and family, and have thoughts. I mean, this is their kind of upper class. I don't even know, want to say twits, but, you know, upper class, somewhat deluded Brits that, you know, are, are obviously way overprivileged and like to complain like the overprivileged do about things that anyone else would go, hey, wake up. <laughs> and all these friends show up and it's a nice cast of people here. Annabelle Wallace, Rufus Jones, uh, Sope Derisu, uh, Lucy Punch, Lily Rose Depp, Kirby Howell Baptiste. Who would, she's playing Death in uh, the new Sandman series, I believe, which I think is perfect casting for the record. But it's clear early on that something is off, and the only one who wants to say anything about it is the one American there, played by Lily Rose Depp, Sophie, and everyone keeps shushing her. And it is revealed gradually, and I'm not going to say exactly what, that really the worst thing possible is going to happen to all these people and they all know about it and they all knew about it ahead of time. I think really kind of, I, I thought of as the main character, Roman Griffin, Griffin Davis, because he's the one who's sort of like bucking against this. Like I, the one person who is just absolutely refusing to accept that, you know, this answer to the problem is the only possible answer they have and brings real pathos to this kid who's sort of, you know, metaphorically dealing with the idea of of mortality in general, but also literally. Yeah, I mean, I I know we're going to be talking about Succession soon and, you know, the new episode of that. But, you know, they're they're so wealthy in Succession that COVID's not even mentioned. And I feel like it's kind of like that in, in with Silent Night a little bit where they're they're not as wealthy as that, but they're they're wealthy enough to get away from it and pretend that it's not happening. You know, whatever this thing is, that's kind of taking over the UK. And it did actually remind me of the great smog of London in the 50s, you know, where th- there there is this kind of thing happening and, and maybe people got away from it, maybe they didn't. But it's really just kind of that party atmosphere that starts to get, you know, a little darker and a little darker. People get a little too drunk. Then they say, hey, let's just go to bed and, th- th- you know, and we'll, we'll everything will be fine in the morning. But everything's not going to be fine in the morning. And the people that realize that the most are the kids because they're they're very used to their parents trying to pretend everything's okay so it, it it does have a really dark ending for sure and yeah i mean if this was like silent night deadly night the remake the sci-fi remake yeah maybe that would have been a better better ending for fantastic fest <laughs> that probably would have been more of a feel-good movie than this is <laughs> these characters the way they sort of go from lightly charming to you get you go from i hate all these people because they're all despicable rich sons of bitches or like over concerned with themselves to actually feeling real compassion for them all to Kind of disliking them again as their secrets begin to be revealed, you know, about their past. They've, the main crew have known each other since their boarding school days. I had a hard time caring. <laughs> Just like, I wish you had thrown some more sympathetic people into this thing because it was really hard, but I, I know a lot of people really liked it. I think I was just so blown away by how bad it made me feel that I just didn't want to think about it anymore when it was over. It's definitely worth watching for the cast, at, at, at least, the very least. Um, and, and, and also just a, for the uh, mansion porn of the, the entire thing. It's a, it's a fantastic house. Well, we were hoping that one of our other guys was going to be able to make it here in time, but I guess not. So we're going to go ahead and talk about Agnes, which is a horror drama directed by Mickey Reese, which I, you like, I say that like you should know. And the only reason you would know is if you have been to 
film festivals a genre because for reasons that I maybe Drew can explain to me, like the Fantastic Fest people, they just love Mickey Reese. They fawn over Mickey Reese. And I've seen three Mickey Reese movies now and I can say with some confidence, I don't get it. I don't see the appeal, but he does make very distinct films. And Agnes, despite appearing from the outside like it's going to be a nunsploitation film, we actually did get one of those this year, but that this was not it. Isn't really. It's a sister Agnes played by Haley McFarland, who's in The Conjuring and Sons of Anarchy. She's a young nun in a totally bumfuck convent of St. Teresa, but she's been having, you know, need to be exercise stuff with like foam at the mouth and swearing and what have you. Her mother superior asks for help. She sent uh, Father Donahue, who was in uh, Ben Hall, who was in Minari, who is an exorcist and the... Yeah, you know, his church doesn't really approve, but he's got a a young protege with him, Ben, who is in Castle Freak and the Vast of Night, and everything doesn't really go how they want it to go or the way you'd expect it to go in these sort of films. I mean, the first half is a somewhat standard for the type of film it looks like, but then it takes a completely out of nowhere left hand twist and becomes basically a character drama about. Uh, Sister Mary, who's Agnes's friend, played by Molly C. Quinn, who is in Dr. Sleep. She leaves the convent, returns to the outside world, and isn't really prepared for dealing with it. And I think that maybe I was more interested in that story because it wasn't as cliched, but it really just kind of shrugs at the entire tone and plot of the first half, where it doesn't even feel like you're watching the same film. I'm right there with you. And as a matter of fact, I think there's even a third tonal shift in this. I think it is three films trying to be one film, and none of them worked for me at all. A couple of the pieces worked for me as pieces, but trying to cram it all into a hole didn't work for me because I was still wondering about two or three things and two or three characters in the first part and then I'm I'm still on the hook about something in the second part by the time we get to the third part and then nothing ever kind of happens or wraps up and I was just bored and I went well I was very much liking this and it was promising going in and now I'm just bored and confused and huh. we saw the same film right because that was pretty much how I felt. <laughs> well, I will say with with Agnes, you know, you have to. You, I know Mickey Reese gets a lot of attention, but he's also he also has a writing partner for a long time, John Selvage, and so they they've been writing everything together. And with Agnes, they decided to, you know, write two halves of a movie. So you know, John Selvage wrote one half, and Mickey Reese wrote the other half. So that's why it feels so disjointed in a way. And you know, they they wanted to kind of experiment that way a little bit and you know at least they're trying to do something a little different and I, and I think it's fun to kind of start a possession movie with a possession and I think that's what kicked it off it's how how you know Mickey and I think John Selvage they think about all their films they, you know it's just it's just a premise and they just keep going from there and and start having fun with it um this this one is maybe a horror comedy drama so yeah it really is kind of all over the place there's stand up there's Sean Gunn you know doing doing comedy but it's kind of a, a world that I wanted to hang out in and I I enjoyed it and I know what you mean Chris it's like if you know if you haven't seen a lot of Mickey Reese stuff you if you're just watching Agnes for the first time it's definitely can, can throw you off but and I'm not saying that if you don't like a movie you should go back and watch everything the other the director has done that's kind of a, a tall task but um you kind of get his vibe a little bit more, I think. And um, really the first, the first movie that I saw of his was, was alien. And it's really a 
take on Elvis Presley. So I'm I'm actually looking forward more to his next film, Country Gold, where Garth Brooks is going to be involved, a fake Garth Brooks, and Bill Hall's Ben Hall's going to be in that as well. Uh, so um, and he's he's kind of said that that's maybe one of his he thinks is one of his best films. But but Agnes, I thought I thought was great, and it, maybe it would be a good double feature with uh, Benedetta. I don't know which one you'd watch first though. Benedetta, the um, Paul Verhoeven entry this year that was one of the uh, surprise films, which was, I mean, it's a non-sploitation film, no question. It's just <laughs> a lot higher quality and technically than most of them. But at the end, I was like, yep, we saw a non-sploitation film. All right. Thanks, Paul. Mm. You're still a weirdo after all these years. This movie was poop. <laughs> I, I was somewhat interested in the it. first third. It's the exorcist parallel of meeting the potential exorcists. And our our exorcist, the church is only sending him because he's like the only one for hundreds of miles or whatever. He's done it, but he's got skeletons in his closet and they really would love to ship him out. And his protege hasn't taken his vows, won't put on the collar yet, even though our, our exorcist is like, no, you don't get it. The, the nun's got to have faith in this. And it's, it's treated as literally no man's land of, oh, we're letting you in on our, our grounds. And the first thing they do is, oh, you're not a priest. And we get invested in Mary and Agnes. And then for the next two thirds, we shift literally locations and characters. The title character, the title is Agnes. And all these characters we, we learn about in the first third are dealt with with three sentences in the last 10 minutes of, oh, yeah, let's tell you. Boom, 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 boom. What? The F just happened. <laughs> totally fair. Drew is the most forgiving, but overall, uh, I did not get people who were, uh, you know, in our, we have a little fantastic Vespines group and some of them were like, best film of the festival. I'm like, we are very different people. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. I love that different uh, forms of art affect different people differently. Speaking of, Drew and I are going to talk about a film I've been, was way, I've been hearing about for a while. I've been so excited to see, which is this is Guar. And the reason this excites me is not so much that I'm specifically a big fan of the, Richmond, Virginia based band Guar, which it's hard for me to imagine where someone hasn't heard of them at this point, but they're like a horror punk band that dress up in super elaborate paper mache type outfits and just have like lots of dick jokes and gore and like they spray their audience with fake blood and semen. And it sounds like it's really offensive, but it's so absurd and also kind of left wing because they kill like whoever the dom, like if the last couple of years they've been murdering Donald Trump on stage and what have you, like they definitely swing that way, but it's so wildly creative, if not completely, you know, sort of rat fink brought to life type of goofballness that I always kind of appreciated it, but more notably the lead singer of it and founder Dave Brocky was my next door neighbor in Richmond, Virginia. And I used to hang out with him all the time and we would trade stuff back in like comics and stuff. And I got to go to the Guar studios. So getting to see an actual documentary that had a lot of old footage, taking a look at how they got started and their early shows and moving on to, which I really had no idea what they've been doing the last 10 years, but sort of following what happened after Dave died and you know, I think this is actually the sort of thing that you show someone as a very entertaining documentary period about a band, even if you've never heard of them, that will make you go, man, next time they're going to come to town, we're going to see them. That's interesting that you mentioned Dave Brocky too, because they actually, they kind of pull back the curtain a little bit in this documentary more than you think they would and reveal some things about him. And maybe he didn't, you know, there's, there's some feelings there. There's some, there's some residual feelings. 
Um, but it also just reminds you that I'm not going to say guardist. I'm not going to do it. But they, that they're, they're but they actually really are artists. Like this started as an art project, you know. And and they and I I just love the kind of DIY attitude that they 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 have. And I think anybody that's seen Guar is going to love this documentary. I don't know if people that don't know who they are are going to enjoy this because I was on a work call yesterday and we were talking about Guar. And this is Gore on the documentary, and there was somebody in their twenties that had never heard of them before. So I, I, I don't know if that that's going to be for for them. Um, but I, I loved it. I, I hope this documentary gets a wide release. It, it, there's, there's getting to a point now where you know Amazon's dropping all their documentaries. All these things are happening. Netflix is kind of taking over. It's not a documentary that Netflix would do, but. I hope somebody picks it up and it gets a, a wider release. It's amazing how much they just filmed. Even in the early days, they were just filming everything. <laughs> like, even from, like, inside touring vans, just fucking around. It's And, you know, you, I don't want to insinuate that I think the movie reveals that Dave wasn't a good guy. He was just, I think it was that him and the other guy who started the band were very different people. <laughs> and, yeah. like, banged heads to the point that it kind of ended up hurting everybody else in the band uh, with the fallout from it. But I like this also had some fun cameos in it as well with director Adam Green, actor Thomas Lennon, Weird Al, Bam Margera, which added a little bit more color. Like, oh, look, Weird Al used to like to go to Guar shows. <laughs> you know, that's awesome. I, can you imagine being at a Guar show and seeing Weird Al next to you? How did they never tour together? I mean, like, Guar is like toured with ICP. You know, why isn't Weird Al and Guar done something together? And it was cool to see Ethan Embry in there t uh, as well. Yeah. Ethan Embry, who who is sort of have a career resurgence lately, thanks to horror, largely with being starring in a series of really good horror and thrillers, uh, cheap thrills, and what is the other one I'm thinking of, where he's the heavy metal painter guy, the the, the devil. What, what is? I can't remember the name of it right now. The Devil Something. I can't remember. A really mm -hmm. good movie, though. Look it up. It's got Devil and it. it's got Ethan Embry. You'll find it. But anyway, uh, I want to wrap up by just giving us all a chance. If there's anything that we have not gotten a chance to talk about that you really, really want to throw out, and I'll let you know if we've already reviewed it on one of the other shows, but if there's something you want to like say, yeah, this was great, then this is your time. Neil? Some like it rare. Uh, French, which is, it's always a coin flip if you're going to watch a French film, if it's going to be good or just too full of itself but a couple who run a butcher shop end up serving humans there i mean they don't hide that at all but really well done um i fear it won't get distribution in the u.s because of male nudity because mm. we don't like the penises but um <laughs> if it gets picked up by amazon or someone like that like it was really good it ends super abruptly, but it still works. Very enjoyable. And then it, from the archive, I really enjoyed Worm. Don't remember if I saw or not. Maybe I saw. It was a couple years ago it played. Yeah. So I don't, I don't remember. And it has no distribution. It has no love, no life, but let's hope. <laughs> right. Neil and I pretty much watched the same well, things with a couple fair. of exceptions. So something like it rare was my... You know, I looked at the plot of that movie and I went, oh, okay. Yeah, we've seen that. Been there. Done that. You know, or it's been a side plot in other things, or even, you know, where even Sweeney Todd, you know, oh, they finally get business when they start serving human, you know, whatever. But they did some things with this that we have not seen done. And it was really fun. And it is, it, don't get me wrong, there was a lot of blood in here at, at times, but there's a lot of comedy here. But it is dark comedy. I mean, it is black humor, but I enjoyed it very much. Laura Freya. 
is also one that mm. I really loved, and that's several, several years old now. But it never got distribution outside of its own country, so it's very hard to find. Well, listen up, distributors, who I'm sure are all waiting for with bated breath to listen to this podcast. <laughs> I, for, I forgot one. I forgot one. If I can jump in. It's a lava. I love that movie. I, it, it is one of my favorites. As far as I know, all Iranian cast in, in front and behind the camera set in pre-revolution rule, rule, rule Iran. Great kind of maybe monster story, but I love how they dance the line of you have some clues either way. You do have a, a, a skeptic and kind of the main character who never fully breaks either way. But when you have a village full of people who believe adamantly of something, you will play along to save your own life. And you know that the vast majority of this cast had to be amateurs. Like they were getting these uh, people, the Iranians, to play these characters. And everybody's really good at it, even though this <laughs> might be the first time they're on film. And I hope that one gets over here. But I love the shit out of that one. That one was really good. It's almost like they were given a 48 hour movie challenge <laughs> a jar, a really small, undernourished cat, and a rural <laughs> village. And they knocked it out of the park. Drew, what about you? I loved uh, Zalava as, as as well. That re- that one really actually touched me, and I love that they they did walk that line in a really beautiful way. Of you know, it's like is this happening or is this not happening? Is this fervor? Or is this not? And I, and I'm so glad they went the direction they did with it. And Devil's Candy, by the way, is the name of the Ethan Devil's Embry Candy. Movie. That was the movie yeah. we were trying to remember. Yeah. I'm surprised that more people aren't talking about the sadness, even that that wasn't technically a premiere at, at Fantastic Fest. But um, I wanted to hear more people's thoughts on that one. But the main one that I missed at Fantastic Fest is The Innocents. I, now mm. I really, really want to watch that. And I just want to make a quick point about just distribution. It's interesting now that with all the, and maybe it's COVID, but with all the streamers and everything, most of the things that we saw this year that are the, that are the new films, they have distribution for the most part. So it's interesting to go back, you know, with the Fantastic Fest at home and see these older films that you remember or you're discovering and they still don't have distribution years later. So you're absolutely right, Chris. Like these distributors you know, should look, look, look at those older films as well. Yeah, absolutely. There's still films from like 10 years ago that I love and yep, still sitting in just on a shelf somewhere. Nobody picked them up. And with all these streaming services these days, I feel like if I worked for a streaming service for acquisitions, I would just go to people who are like festival heads and go, what movies never got a release that you thought were amazing? And then track down all these missing little gems that way and get them probably for a song. A few things I wanted to throw out there that I thought were really, really good and worth checking out. There's a movie Hostage Missing Celebrity, which was a Korean thriller film. And I know a lot of times that means, oh, this is going to be super sick. And it wasn't. It was kind of a straightforward Korean thriller film. Its twist was the guy who gets kidnapped and made hostage is actually a very famous actor, and he's playing himself, who is a very famous actor, who gets kidnapped by these people, and he, you know, using his wits, has to figure out how to get out of the situation. And it's really, really good, and has, like, one of the best car chases I've seen in a while, and, uh, yeah, highly recommend that. The Beta Test, the new Jim Cummings film, which I love Jim Cummings' movies, uh, Thunder Road and uh, Wolf of Snow Hollow. This is the first time in one of his films he does not play a cop. <laughs> but it's an erotic thriller, is how they described it, and awkward the girl sitting next to me when they said that who went yes finally i was like really okay (laughs) are we all waiting for the erotic thriller to make a big comeback i guess that girl was but uh it's charming i don't think i liked it as much quite as much as his first two but it is like everything you want from a jim cummings film including a scene of him having a major freak out in a parking garage which they didn't realize till that night has happened in all three of his films 
So, or in a parking lot, if you will. Lastly, wanted to talk about Timekeepers of Eternity, which isn't technically a film. It's a remix of Stephen King's miniseries from the 90s, The Langoliers, which was a, I think, three-part television miniseries with Bronson Pinchot is probably the biggest actor in it playing just this outrageous over-the-top asshole. But they re-edited the whole thing to like just over an hour and they gave it all this effect of like paper. It's all in black and white now and it does a lot of things where like the image rips open to show someone else like responding to things rather than switch to a scene. And this is all because in the movie, Bronson Pinchot's character has this annoying quality of when he gets stressed, he peeled tears pieces of paper and it also changes the ending so it's completely depressing but it's actually quite impressive what they do and i'm like ooh, i would love to see them do this from other stuff where is your shogun i can't wait to see what you do with that anyway uh, there was other good stuff we saw as well but i'm not going to go into that because we are out of time thank you guys for joining me on fantastic fest infestation 2021 it was a good year for it if you have never been to Fantastic Fest, you should seriously consider it, especially, I mean, it's great in person, but now because of the COVID years, they had to figure out how do we do this online? And now there's a whole online version of the festival that you can do. You can get a badge specifically to watch about somewhere between half and three quarters of the films just at home or at a friend's house, whatever. You can have your own little Fantastic Fest where everybody gets to choose which film they feel like seeing. So for next year, you should keep an eye on it. Because that's the thing you could get, and it would be well worth your time. But thank you to Neil, Drew, and Ray for joining me, as well as on the previous podcasts that we've done in this series, Alan and Matt. And, uh, well, that is it for our infestation for Fantastic Fest. I'll be back with more infestation when South by Southwest rolls around, and we'll see how that goes.